In episode 524 with Humble the Poet, we talk about how to be a better friend. We're talking about social media comparison, creativity, how to deepen all of your relationships, the power of vulnerability, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis, and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hi, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this beautiful conversation. And for those of you that have never heard of Humble the Poet, he is a Canadian-born rapper, spoken word artist, poet, internationally best-selling author, and former elementary school teacher. What began as reciting spoken word poetry in coffee shops to impress girls evolved into a creative adventure that has spanned the last 10 years, crossing genres, mediums, and oceans. He is the author of three books. His first two releases, Unlearn and The Things Nobody Can Teach Us, have become international bestsellers, and his latest book, How to Be Loved, is destined to have the same impact. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 524. Now let's bring on this incredible man, Humble the Poet. Humble, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? I had a banana, I had an apple, and I had some yogurt, Greek yogurt. And where are you right now in the world? I am in New York City. Mmm, and it's summer there. Nice. It is extremely hot here. (laughs) Well, it's the opposite here. We're in winter down under, and it is a bit chilly. What's chilly? What's chilly for Australian standards? Look, it's not even that bad, to be honest. It doesn't get like New York winters, so... It's not that bad. I need to just suck it up and enjoy it. Is it above 10 Celsius? It's not even that cold. Oh, wow. In the middle of the day, it's like 20 degrees Celsius. (laughs) Okay. So I'm from Toronto originally. So 20 degrees counts as like t-shirt weather. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But your days are shorter. I get it. I get it. I was was living in LA. I just moved from LA. And even though the weather never got super cold, the days got short and I had an impact. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, you have an incredible story. You were an elementary school teacher who then started reciting spoken word poetry in a coffee shop to impress girls. Now, this is really funny because my husband, he used to play the recorder and when he was younger, and then he decided to play the saxophone because he wanted to impress girls. So I can totally relate to that. And now you are a rapper, a poet, and an internet megastar, a best-selling author, It sounds like a fairy tale. In terms of realizing your creative dreams, is that what it felt like to you? Like, how did this all go down? It definitely did not feel like a fairy tale. Still still doesn't. I think it was more a lot of trial and error. Instead of putting in 10,000 hours, I did 10,000 different trial and errors. And you start building progress, but you're also focused on what you need to do next and focused on people who might be doing more than you. And you don't realize how much you've gained, how much you've acquired, how much you've learned, how much you've evolved as a person. And I think for me, that's really been the journey. And to be able to appreciate that has really been a key goal of mine, you know, to realize that there's no pot of gold. The rainbow is the pot of gold, especially when it comes to being able to learn about things and share them with other people without claiming to be an expert. I'm not trying to be the expert. I'm just trying to be the kid at the front of the class who's trying to learn this stuff himself and then being willing to share their notes so they can better understand it internally and externally. Mm, I love that. So beautiful. So how did you go from elementary school teacher to reciting spoken word? Like, What was that transition? Well, I think the poetry and the writing and sharing was always in me. And I think once I started working as a school teacher as an adult and not being in school 
It was more about trying to find things to do after work and go out and get into town and meet girls and all of that. And I think when me and my friends came across a, a coffee shop that had a spoken word night and it was kind of an open mic situation, it was something worth exploring to see, you know, what we could do. And getting involved in that, you know, I just, I had some stuff written down because so I was always writing and and sharing it and seeing like, oh, wow, like the crowd was receptive to it, but also like it was an instant icebreaker to meet girls. And, you know, it kind of became like a self-fulfilling loop of working on stuff. But then as I was doing it and finding different things to write about, because I would just talk about things that I found interesting, whether things that were happening in the world from a political sense or things that were happening within me from an emotional sense. And then what you start to realize is it's like you're telling other people's stories by telling your own. And in, in addition to that, I started looking at new mediums. So this is like when YouTube had just begun, I started sharing stuff on YouTube. And back then, anybody who shared anything on YouTube, people saw it, you know, when the algorithms were friendly to us. And, you know, that, that became an evolution where I started getting involved in music. I started getting involved in trying to have a certain sound to what I was doing. And then certain opportunities came my way while I was still working. I had never thought about leaving my job. I just looked at this as an artistic hobby. And at that point, when these opportunities came, you know, I think I kind of burnt out from the teaching world. I've been doing it for a couple of years. And it's a very challenging and taxing job. And it's quite a thankless job as well. And I think I, you know, without doing any due diligence, I just left my job and jumped into this music world, not realizing that, you know, the opportunities I had weren't very concrete. And then I found myself unemployed without any opportunities, you know, with a lot of credit card debt because I was living off of that. And that's when the journey really began. And then I had to really kind of process what I was going through and the mistakes I was going through. And I started sharing all of that and just plain white, black and white writing, you know, on Facebook, kind of like a blog. And I think that's when I started resonating with the most people because I was sharing my story in a non-artistic fashion that made it easy for them to digest and then also make sense of their own feelings and emotions. And I think my experience as a teacher helped me take more complicated ideas and simplify them, you know, for an eight-year-old to understand. And you realize you do that for anybody, you're speaking to their inner child, or you're just making it accessible for people with different levels of education. And it was my community that told me to publish a book. I didn't know how. And then they shared all the resources on self-publishing and crowdfunding. And I crowdfunded my first book. I self-published it. And it slowly grew over the years. And eventually, I was designing clothes in, in, in the fashion space because when I was making music, I would sell t-shirts at my shows. Um, on top of that, I was still trying to make music. And I was making music and, and things were going well in that space in terms of the audience growth that I was getting from that. Then probably in 2017, the biggest bookstore in Canada decided that they wanted to carry my book. And from there, it became a bestseller. And from there, I got the attention of the people in the States. And I signed with an agent. And I signed with HarperCollins. And I released two books with them. And now I've just finished, you know, released my third book uh, with a new publisher, uh, Hay House, which has been a great partner. And the journey's kind of evolved and it's kind of been a combination of being proactive and reactive. Like you set something up and then something else comes out of nowhere and you have to react to that. And I think now I'm at, I'm at this stage where it's like, okay, I, I've graduated from Starving Artist and I can really honor, explore myself from a creative standpoint, but also have a better understanding of who I am and, and what I can do to add value to the world that allows me to keep doing it. Mm, beautiful. This all started with you simply sharing your stories, sharing what you were going through. Now, whether you're in business or just want to deepen your connections and relationships with other people, we can all benefit from hearing other people's stories. And it's what makes people lean in. So what would you say to someone who is holding back sharing more of their authentic self and more of their stories? whether it's in their business or it's in their personal life, how can we bust through that limit that people are going to judge us or that I have nothing to offer? I think we have to remember that what we're chasing at the end of the day is a feeling. We're not chasing a thing. You're not chasing a million dollars. You're chasing the feeling of freedom that you think is going to come from getting a million dollars. We're not chasing 
having a lot of followers on social media. We're chasing the feeling we think we're going to get from the, all that attention. And I think that's important because at the end of the day, that feeling you're chasing is being feeling safe to be yourself. And to be yourself means to be vulnerable. And if we start conducting ourselves in terms of what we think will work, whether it's what will work for our business, what will grow our channels, what will do all of that, then we're sentencing ourselves to do the exact opposite. And it won't matter how successful it is. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It'll definitely work and grow your channels and grow your business, but you're not going to get the feeling that you're actually chasing. And then you're going to keep wondering what's missing. And we're playing such games at such big scales where you can spend your whole life to see, oh, maybe I need to make a little bit more. I need to make a little bit more. I need to make a little bit more. Then you can waste away your whole life doing that, never capturing that feeling that you actually want. And I think for most people, that feeling is to just be allowed and feel safe enough and feel confident enough to be who they authentically are. And to be yourself only requires you to know yourself. And it's just very challenging in, in, in this modern age, especially with social media, because we're subtly told who to be or how to be. And even when we are vulnerable, there's a score attached to it. And then you start to you know, keep track of the score. And like, well, okay, I posted this beautiful flower that moved me, but then I posted a picture of myself in a bathing suit and they got more engagement. Maybe I should do more bathing suits, right? And you start to realize that you're not, you're, you're not sharing what's good and beautiful. You're sharing what works, what engages. And that's generally going to skew towards the negative side. It's going to skew towards what gets people's reactions. Good news takes a long time to form. You know, somebody loses 20 pounds. Somebody gets out of debt. This takes a long time. Bad news, somebody breaks a leg. That happens immediately. And you're trying to capture people's attention from everybody else's attention. So you're playing this attention economy game. So then we're afraid of showing who we are because we all think who we are is enough or we think we are going to be judged. And the truth is we will. Other strangers will judge us. You know, other people may not resonate with us. But the truth of the matter is you still have to do it because we live in a world of probabilities. And the more you share who you are, the more you're going to find people to connect with that authentically see you. And that way we can actually be who we authentically are versus creating these kind of communities based off superficial metrics. Well, you know, I'm a woman, so I'll connect with all the women. Or I'm South Asian, I'll connect with all the South Asians. It's like, no, you're, we're much more complex. And if we want to find our tribe and our people, that requires us to know who we are. And whether it's dating, whether it's being on social media, whether it's starting a business, it's more important to figure out who you want to be and be it than figuring out how to attract more people. Because it's just not sustainable. What, what will attract people today won't attract them five years from now. And now you're constantly sacrificing your mental health and your inner peace to adjust yourself to make more people like you, you know? And now we're in an age where people call themselves influencers, but really they're just professional people pleasers. You know, it's just, it, they're one degree away from being a politician without all the rewards that politicians get for pretending to care what other people think. And I think from that standpoint, it's just a really important thing to realize from day one, that if you want people to see you for who you are, you have to let them see you. And be okay that you're not for everybody. And that's completely, everybody's not for you. When I see people that do stuff I don't care for, I just move on. You know, I don't punish them. And this is going to be the same thing. And the only way to build authentic connections with anybody is vulnerability. And it's just remembering that vulnerability isn't zero or 100. You don't have to tell somebody your deepest, darkest secrets. But you can also save yourself the time of having superficial, surface-level conversations with them. And you can talk about fears, anxieties, insecurities, you know, things that we all have. And I think what I learned from me was that as I shared my story, it was helping other people figure out their own stories. And it makes me always think about people who paint in caves, right? Like why were they painting stories in caves? It was to pass down important information, whether it was this is where we find water, just watch out for that saber-toothed tiger. They weren't doing it for the clout or the followers or to build a brand or a business. They were doing it because it needed to be done. And we've only made it this far because we build off of each other's knowledge. We can share and collect and evolve our knowledge, which is, you know, we're one of the rare animals that can do that. And being a part of that will, will make us feel a lot more useful because I think that's what we want. We want to feel like we matter. And right now we think how we matter is, is, is in terms of numbers and engagement or dollars. 
But really, you know, you can make yourself matter just by having an impact on somebody else through sharing your story the way you can uniquely share it. Mm. Now, you've said our relationship with ourselves is the most important one that we have, and it sets the tone for any other relationship we'll enter. So how do we have a good relationship with ourselves? How do we stop self-sabotaging? And what if we're so used to hating on ourselves and beating ourselves up? How do we break that cycle and get back into a good and healthy relationship with ourselves? I think building a relationship with ourselves is no different than building a relationship with anybody else. The foundation is going to be vulnerability. So let's be vulnerable with ourselves. And ways you can be vulnerable with yourselves is journaling, having an honest journal, knowing that no one's going to read this journal and, and being as honest as possible in that journal, talking about anything that made you feel anything. And just letting it all out, inventing it out. I think prayer is a really good example too. Even if you're not religious, prayer is really good because it helps you realize what you want. Because when you ask for something, no one like it's not performative. Nobody is there to hear you pray, you know, other than you and whoever you believe in. So now whatever you're asking for, that helps you understand, have a deeper understanding of what actually matters to you. We're only going to be at peace when we can live a life in alignment with our values, but we have to know our values. So we have to find out where are our values really revealed. So, you know, that's going to come through in what we pray for. Paying attention when we envy people, understanding what is it about them that I envy. Envy teaches us what actually matters to us. And I think that's really important. And then from a physical standpoint, dancing, you know, you can dance by yourself, get to know your body on a deeper level. These are all different ways that we can begin a relationship with ourselves on a deeper level and start to respect who we are. Your second question with regards to like negative self-talk and self-sabotage, you know, we have protective pessimism, which is to protect ourselves, we're pessimistic. You know, we, we choose familiar over healthy. So if we're in a bad situation, but we've been in the situation long enough, we'd rather stay in that situation and do something new, even if something new is better. So we're going to sabotage ourselves because we prefer to be in the misery that we know versus the happiness that we don't know. And I think just having grace for yourself and just being like, look, I understand why my body doesn't want me to try some new things. You know, that's, that's homeostasis. That's not on the agenda. I understand that. But I also understand that for me to feel better about myself and improve the quality of my life, that's not going to come from anywhere other than my efforts. So I think it's really understanding that there's nothing wrong with us for self-sabotage. And there's also nothing wrong with us for having negative self-talk. These are actually, you know, this is part of our old ancient software of how we are as human beings. And, you know, one tip that I found that works really well for the negative self-talk is to reply to the self-talk with love. And, you know, so if you say, oh, you know, we're, we're ugly. And it's really, well, you know, I remember when we first got that idea and we heard that from so-and-so in middle school. And you know what? They probably didn't even mean it when they said it. They were just saying stuff to get get attention from everybody else. And they were 13. And what did any of us know? We were all insecure back then. And I understand why we believe that. Or I understand why we think that. You know, our, our mother may have been critical, but she was trying to protect us. And I think it's just going deeper into these beliefs and not just thinking because it's in my head, it's got to be true. We don't have to believe everything we think. And we actually don't own everything that's in our heads. Oftentimes, we're not generating unique thoughts. We're just parroting thoughts that were told to us, you know, and other people's voices slowly start to sound like ours. You know, the absolute truth is you don't know what other people think when they meet you. And they don't know what you think when you meet them. And the way you see them isn't the way they see themselves. And the way they see you isn't the way you see yourself. So it's really important to understand that, look, the way I'm designed just as a human being is I'm going to always fight the urge to do new things, even if the new things are good for me. That's just part of it. That's why those people you see at the gym every day, they, they have to fight that battle every single day. They got to tie those shoelaces every single day to go on that run. Because, you know, Mother Nature doesn't, doesn't necessarily care if we exercise. She just wants us to eat, sleep, and procreate. Anything else after that is a bonus only for our lives. So I think for me, it's really important is when you establish this relationship for yourself, you don't do it out of shoulds. I should do this, I should do that. Just make promises to yourself the way a friend would. And, and keep the promises to yourself the way a friend would. You know, and keeping the promises you make to yourself, that increases your self-respect. And the more self-respect you increase, the better you feel. And then also the less outward self-esteem that you chase from other people and validation. Because right now, we can just 
exist chasing other people's validations. We have complete platforms and apps designed for it, have numbers besides how much other people value us. But really, it's not other people. It's just an algorithm and, and people's attention. But the truth is, the more that we do difficult things and the more that we keep our promises to ourselves, we build a stronger relationship with ourselves and we see what we're capable of. And then at that point, our relationship improves and you combine that with the vulnerability talk, with the prayer, with the dance, with the journaling, then you, you, you start to get into a self-actualization phase, which I think is much more important than worrying about how other people see you. It's having a deeper understanding of yourself and who you are and what your unique size of life should be, the shoe size to your life, what it should be. And if we don't figure out who we are, there's a million people that will tell us who to be. And I think it's important to figure out who we are and enjoy that journey. It's a never-ending journey. I love some of those practical things, especially the journaling and the dancing and the prayer. And I just wanted to also mention, I think when we're journaling, some people can still hold back. And I know for me, I've still held back. But if I know that I am going to rip it up and put it in the bin or burn it afterwards, it allows me the freedom to completely express uncensored. And so I want to encourage everyone to rip it up, burn it, do whatever you've got to do afterwards to allow yourself to fully be able to express. Because I know some people might hold back and just go, oh, but what if my partner reads this? Or what if my kids read this? Or whatever. So allow yourself that freedom to fully express, rip it up, burn it, do whatever you've got to do afterwards. Yes, the act of expression is what matters. Once it's on the page, you can get rid of it. Yes, the act of getting it onto the page and out of your head. Exactly. Now, a dear friend told me that your take on what it means to be in a healthy romantic relationship has changed the way that she dates forever. So what does a healthy relationship look like? And where is modern society missing the mark? Well, I thank your friend for, the, for those kind words. A healthy relationship is two people who are interdependent, not codependent. And, you know, to quote Khalil Gibran, it's, you know, two pillars that understand that the more distance between them, the more, you know, love and wind can flow through. So I think having two people who view themselves as complete individuals instead of viewing themselves as, you know, partial individuals looking to be complete or having a better half, I think is really important. And I think the the space that modern society I don't want to say modern society has it wrong, but the, the space that modern society is kind of signaling us in the wrong direction is that what was used for entertainment somehow became informative. You know, we watch Friends and we see like Ross and, and Rachel, and we think they're teaching us how to be in a relationship when they were designed to entertain us. And that cat and mouse game is entertaining because the healthiest relationships that you know in your own personal life, they would not make for good TV. And we have to understand that we're not being taught and informed by things that were created to entertain us. But when we're young and we're impressionable, we don't know the difference. So what it really is, is we have these ideas of like, you want the spark. You want to feel a spark, you know. And there's a lot of, you know, data supporting the idea that the spark is actually a warning sign to go the other way. Because again, that spark reminds us of something that's familiar, not something that's healthy. And oftentimes we're just trying to recreate our childhood and adulthood. We're just trying to have those same feelings. And our understanding of our childhood was limited because we still had developing brains, so we can only look at the world as black and white. So if we had a parent who we felt we had to fight to get their attention, now we're going to find a partner attractive that, we, that requires us to do the same. But we, don't, we may not understand the context that, yeah, we might have to fight for our parents' attention because they were busy working a job and feeding us, or they had adult life and had 12 other things that they had to focus on, not just us. And I think we don't really update the software with how we have to act accordingly. Because we just do whatever we needed to do to survive then. So I think from that standpoint, it's really about focusing on peace, not focusing on pleasure, not viewing these kind of surface level chaos and drama as signs that you're in a good relationship or signals that somebody cares about you. If anything, it's having a good relationship with yourself and having somebody that you feel safe around, somebody that brings peace, whether that's physical safety, whether that's emotional safety, somebody that you can be vulnerable with. You know, and again, there's levels of vulnerability. It's not, you know, you share your deepest, darkest secret on the first date. It's somebody that you constantly are evolving with. And, you know, Jay Shetty brings this up, that most of the time that couples spend together is watching TV. You're not 
building anything. You have to build stuff by being more and more vulnerable, having more and more new experiences together. You know, that can come in the form of sex, that can come in the form of your date nights, that can come in the form of your conversations. But you have to go deeper and establish something deeper with each other. I do think, you know, these swan-like, these swan-like monogamous relationships are beautiful, but like, just like eating clean and healthy is getting harder and harder because modern society isn't designed for us to have any of this. Modern society is designed for us to be productive. And if that means making us balls of anxiety, who have to pay off our student loan debts and credit card debts and working 80 hours a week, well, that's what modern society is going to have. It's not designed to make us feel happy or have us at peace because none of that's good for the economy. So I think it's really important just to understand that, you know, true love feels like peace. And oftentimes that might be, you know, that that book attached says it beautifully. It was like, you know, we think you probably already met your soulmate and passed on them because you thought they were boring. And I think that's just really important is you're looking for peace, not pleasure. Pleasure right now seems to be the medication for a lack of peace. So interesting. That thought of potentially missing your soulmate because you were looking for something different, that just like, wow. I'm like, wow, okay. Because I have some friends who are single and they want that. And I'm like, maybe they weren't looking for the right things. So it's really fascinating. So yeah, I love that. Let's talk about another kind of relationship, another kind of love, and that is friendships. So your second book is all about unlearning the societal programming that keeps us stuck in suffering. So what do you wish people could unlearn about friendships? I mean, number one, your friends can't be your therapist. You know, your friends, everybody you speak to with your problems has a stake in the outcome, whether they know it or not. You know, so you, if you're single, your single friends want you to stay single. If you're, you know, married, thinking about getting divorced, talk to your married friends. They're going to try to keep you on team marriage. Everyone's, everyone's recruiting for their team, whether they know it or not. And I think that's completely fine. When you need help, you need help from people who know what they're doing. And clinical psychologists exist and people who are, you know, have studied these areas who don't have a personal relationship with you, I think is really important. Friendships also need to evolve and grow. And it requires us to be vulnerable with each other as well and hold space for each other and understand that we influence each other's behavior. And I think that's really important. Self-love requires us to be our own best friend. And whatever we define and we require, understand we can do that. Not only can we be our own best friends, we can be our own nurturing parents. We can self-parent now. So instead of simply being victims of what we used to have growing up, because we're all raised by flawed individuals, let's figure out where the holes and the gaps were and as adults, fill those holes and gaps, both in our friendships and in our family situation. And I think that's extremely important. And the best way to, to have great friends is to be a great friend. You know, the best way to have a great partner is to be a great partner. You know, be, be what you think you want. And I think so often we look at other people there, we want to put the responsibility on them to prop us up versus us focusing on propping up other people. Where's the line with our friendships, with not treating them like our therapist? but still being vulnerable. Where's that line? What does that look like? Because you want them to be involved in your life and you want to be vulnerable and intimate with them and share what's going on. But where is the line? I think the way I would look at it is, again, don't look at vulnerable as black and white. So don't say I am vulnerable, I am not vulnerable. So for example, I encourage everybody listening to have two vulnerable stories in their pocket that they could tell any stranger the first time they met them. So, for example, I can give you a vulnerable story that I am comfortable sharing with any stranger that I'm not afraid of the judgment. Earlier, when we started the podcast, my, my puppy started growling at the door. You know, she is my second puppy. So I waited. I had a German Shepherd growing up. He was a great dog. He lived 11 years and then he passed away. And then after him, I kind of said I never want to have another dog again. Just, to, just to, the process of taking him to the vet on his last day, putting him to sleep, watching him afraid, just completely broke my heart. And I completely never want another dog again. During the pandemic, somebody had told me about somebody else who had ordered a puppy from this breeder 
And the puppy came out a color they didn't want. They wanted a, a red dog. The puppy came out black. They didn't want it. And I was like, a black, you know, you don't want a black dog. Dog racism, that's weird. Then they asked me if I wanted the dog. And I was leaving Toronto in a couple of months to move to Los Angeles. And I'm like, no, I don't want the dog. I'm moving to America. I can't. Dogs are too much work. And then, you know, a few shots of tequila later, I was like, I want the dog. Give me the dog. Where's the dog? I need the dog now. And I ended up, you know, I ended up getting Boogie, who was, who was my puppy. And I got it during the pandemic. So whenever you take her to the vet, you know, I had to leave her at the door and then they would take her in and treat her and then leave her at the door and let they pick her up. Fast forward about a year after I got her, I'm living in Los Angeles. She flew with me and I take her to the veterinary office and the world has been opening up now. This is the probably late 2021, early 2022, early 2022. And it was the first time I had seen the metal table in a veterinary's office since 10 years prior when my dog died. And I was instantly physically triggered. And I, I wouldn't have expected that. Like, it wasn't something I thought of until I walked into that office. And I'm there with a very healthy, young, energetic puppy, but I felt it. I felt nauseated. I felt very sick. And it was just a reminder that, you know, there are things that we carry that we may not know until they come up at like the most inopportune times. So it's been a new journey having, having this beautiful puppy, but also it's, it's, it's been helping me process and release all these old pains from losing my, my previous dog. So that's an example of a story that's vulnerable, but it's not a story I'm afraid to share with a stranger. You know, it's not a, it might be ranked, you know, a, a three out of 10 on the, on, the, on the TMI scale. You know what I mean? I encourage everyone to have two of these stories. And when you meet people, start with these stories. Because what you're going to find is, again, that's not a story I can be judged on. You know, it's a, it's a light story. But what it'll do, it'll, it'll serve as an opportunity for somebody else to be vulnerable with you. And now you're creating, you're creating, you're starting off on vulnerability. Do this when you're dating. Do this in any capacity. And this takes away the fluff. The, so what's your favorite color? So what do you do for fun? It takes away all these fluff conversations that have no actual value and meaning. It, it, it tells you who somebody is. And I think that's extremely important when it comes to being vulnerable is understanding that. You don't have to be afraid of being judged. And I think from that standpoint, if that if they are received in a positive manner, if you are you feel seen and heard after that, you know, and again, there may be somebody on the other end of that story who's never had a dog, doesn't get it. And, you know, that's the end of our conversations. We're not going deeper. With somebody else, it may be a whole different experience. So what I would say is you start small and you keep elevating. You keep escalating the level of vulnerability that you can with somebody. So there is no line. There doesn't need to be a line especially if you're just looking to vent. But if you're asking for help, if you're asking for assistance, I think going to a professional, I think, is really important. And I think if you are a friend, it's the same way. If somebody comes to you with something that's way out of your tool, your, your, your wheelhouse, I, I would highly recommend you tell that person to seek professional help. You know, it's a, And again, I have friends that have said to me, like, why are you putting your business out there to a therapist when you just talk to me? And I was like, well, if my car breaks down, I don't go to you. I go to someone who knows how to fix it, right? So let me go to somebody who went to school for this. Everybody's good at what they're good at, and, and let's focus on that. And I think that's the really important thing. That doesn't, it's not a sign of any love. So I don't think there has to be a line. I think start small, but start being vulnerable early. Set the tone with any relationship you have by being vulnerable and, and carry it forward. And I've noticed that because I have a lot of childhood friends. I have a lot of friends that I've known since elementary school. And these are conversations that we're having now about vulnerability. And letting people know, like, you don't have to deal with this by the, by yourself. And I have other friends. I have a friend who just, you know, his policy, and and again, it's a beautiful policy, and I'm on the fence about it, but I think it's a beautiful policy. His policy is no crying alone. Have friends that you can call when you want to cry. And I think, you know, depending on your history with friends, I think that's great. Again, I still love clinical therapists and psychologists. It is It does cost money, but I do think it's really important if you find the right one that can support you on your journey. Yeah, exactly. I love that. It's so important. And I am really excited after this to go and find my two vulnerable stories. I was just thinking, I'm like, what would mine be? And I want everyone to take a moment after this conversation to think about your two stories and come and tell both of us on Instagram. I would absolutely love to hear one of your stories. And you don't have to go into the whole story. You could just give a little nutshell 
I would just love to hear. So that's really, really beautiful because it also doesn't leave you with a vulnerability hangover. You know, oh my gosh, have I, I've just met this person and have I overshared? You know how you sometimes walk away from those interactions where you're like, oh my gosh, I just shared way too much. I feel sick in my stomach and the other person didn't share or the other person kind of just looked at you very oddly. So I love that. It allows people to still have an insight into who you are. It allows people to lean in. It allows people to feel your essence, but it's not too deep. And so I love that. Yeah. And, and have, as I said, have them, in, have them in your pocket. Already have them prepared. And I think that's the important part. That, that'll save you from crossing the line into the TMI area where you're caught off guard and you think you need to share. I think this is something which allows you to, again, set this tone that vulnerability is just going a little bit deeper in the surface and being, and, and as I said, if I share that story and somebody judged me, that's, that's, not, that's nothing on me at this point. You know, and we all have versions of that story. And often we're only avoiding being vulnerable because we're afraid of judgment. But I can tell you as somebody who's been very vulnerable to a lot of people, most of the time really gone the other way. It's opened up the door for them to be vulnerable with me. And also at the worst, it just ended in a, in a silence. But I have never felt some intense judgment from anybody after I was vulnerable. Mm, yeah. Let's go a little bit more granular on the friendships. I think we can all relate to having that friend who always cancels plans at the last minute. I love your take on this. Could we dig into this? Why do people cancel plans after they've already said yes? What does this mean? And what are your personal rules for deciding when you should move on from a friendship? So I learned this living in LA because LA is the you know, the capital of we should get together and then you never get together. So from my understanding of it is that there is a there is a dopamine reward just for saying you'll make a plan and not actually making a plan, let alone sticking to the plan. That's probably the same thing as like, hey, you know what? Starting tomorrow, I'm going to quit drinking or starting tomorrow, I'm going to go to the gym. There's an instant dopamine reward drop that, that comes to you from saying it. And then the doing it, requires a lot more work. And, you know, sticking with a plan, honoring a plan, I think it's, it's more labor. And you've already got the dopamine drop from saying, we'll hang out. What's the point of hanging out? And why people do it, I think that's one of the reasons. I think also people are afraid of saying no. People don't like appearing unlikable. And I think so often we choose being liked over loved by telling people what we think they want to hear, even if we don't follow up at the expense of our credibility as people. So I think I don't think it's really nefarious that people make these plans. I think, you know, if I if it's a Monday and I make plans for Friday, I don't know how I'm going to feel on Friday. And I can tell you as somebody who tries to keep every plan he makes, sometimes I am forcing myself based off simply saying, hey, you said you're going to do it, you got to do it. But also recognizing that it's not black and white. It's not just doing it or not doing it. You can communicate if you can't do it. Say, hey, I made this plan with you. I'm really, really, really sorry. I'm not in a place where I can come out and give a decent explanation or what have you. For me, I think I pick up on patterns, and I think that's important. Pay attention to people's actions over their words, and the, and the more their actions and words don't match, the more that matters. And I think establishing a boundary with people is not telling them who they have to be, it's telling them who you are. So for me, you know, I've let people know, say, hey, like, I look forward to these hangouts, and when they get canceled, it makes me feel like I don't matter. You know, I don't, I wonder if these happen at, at your work, or I wonder if these happen with other stuff because I feel like when it matters, people show up. But when they think it matters, that people show up. And it makes me feel like I don't matter. And I don't want to keep holding my breath wondering because this might be the third time or the second time. So it's best that we just don't make plans anymore. And again, I try my best to say it without using the word you, you know, without trying to attack a person. I try to tell them my story. And my story is I'm not trying to be a person who gets their hopes up and is constantly canceled on. And yeah, I've, I've ended relationships over that friendships over that. And I've also improved friendships dramatically over that by setting that and, and, and setting those boundaries. And I think oftentimes we think setting boundaries is telling people who to be. And it's no, it's telling people who you are and what your standards are. And it's not telling someone like, hey, you have to start honoring your commitments. It's saying, hey, look, be you, do whatever, but I'm not going to be around people who constantly cancel. If you want to be a person who does that, you know, good luck to you. I wish you all the best, but I'm not going to be around that. 
And I think setting those boundaries strengthens your self-respect for yourself, your self-love for yourself, and it also teaches people that if they want to be around you, this is how it'll work. And, and they have a choice. They don't have to. You know, they definitely don't have to. And, you know, we're also in an age where not everybody grew up with the same level of accountability as other people. And it doesn't make them horrible, horrible people. Different circumstances have done different things. So it's been, you know, I've held people accountable and it's gone sideways and I've held people accountable and it's totally improved the relationship. And I think that's really important just to communicate. And the other reason why it's important to communicate it is because it saves you from some of the darkest emotions humans can have, which is resentment. You don't want to resent anybody. And resenting somebody is by not telling them how you feel. And now you're dealing with that poison just by yourself. And that's a very dark place to be. And it's better to tell somebody how you feel at the risk of not being liked by them than not telling them how you feel and resenting them. Yeah, we have with my friends an understanding. And because a lot of us are mothers, we just say, let's pencil this in. And pencil is fluid. Pencil is, if we're there, we're there. If we're not, it's all good. So I think just practicing what I call crystal clear communication, just speaking openly and lovingly from your heart and saying, this is how I feel when you continue to cancel. Can you talk to me about how you have those tougher conversations with friendships, you know, when the friendship has run its course, when there is that separation, is it best to completely avoid it? Or is it best to have a conversation and to close that loop and to not have that tab left open? I personally think it's best to, better to have a conversation just because I think what I realize is there's very few people are, you know, like, rubbing their hands together nefariously, trying to harm you. Even when people don't treat you right, sometimes it's out of an anxiety. Sometimes, you know, if somebody doesn't respond to you, it can be out of an anxiety. Sometimes people don't honor their commitments. It can be out of something completely different. And I think the stories that we tell in our head when we don't have that information can, can skew negative. And the stories they tell themselves can skew negative. I think having the conversation allows you a space to ask questions and gain some insight. And I think that's really important. I've had situations where people are like, well, I have ADHD and I just don't remember these things. And it's like, well, thank you for giving me context. But now the question is like, whose responsibility is your ADHD? Is it my responsibility now to constantly remind you? Are you asking me that to be the, the nudger of plans? Are you asking me to put this in your calendar? Like, what are we saying here? You know, or are you just telling me to absolve yourself of any responsibility? And, you know, and at that point, I think you can start, things can start getting figured out. I think with some people who want, who want things to be better, you know, you just come up with a game plan that works for everybody. And then for other people, you start to realize like there's just a complete disconnect and there isn't a level of ownership and accountability. And again, that's when you probably say, look, I wish you the best. I think it's just, I can't be a part of this. You know, and I can't speak for you, but I'm sure most people listening have a hard time making time for the people they genuinely love and are excited to be around. Why spend any more time on this? And it's like, I get it. We can be attracted to the chase. We can be attracted to the validation because that starts to trigger in old feelings. But at the same time, it's not going to work out well in the long run. Yeah, yeah. In your book, Unlearned, there's a quote that I love. Your priorities are not revealed in your words. They are revealed in your actions and your actions are revealed by your schedule. So what is your daily schedule? I'd love to hear. What priorities would you see if you looked at your daily calendar and routines? Okay, I mean, you're catching me months after I finished a very big book drop and release. So I think right now, the number one thing you would see in my schedule is just I, I have a puppy and my life is pretty much devoted to keeping her occupied and keeping her busy. And probably absorbing absorbing a lot of creativity and art. I just moved to New York. So, you know, this, the city is a living art gallery. And I'm spending a lot of time outside absorbing it and learning as much as I can from it. It has been a thing. And I, and I kind of operate in seasons. So when I'm starting the next book, which will probably be in the fall, then, you know, you'll see me wake up and immediately start writing, even without caffeine or anything, just immediately go straight to the computer and, and, and bang out one hour. But I think for me right now, what, what my schedule will show is a lot of time for the puppy, a lot of time for me to learn new things and have new experiences, whether it's being in jujitsu class, 
or taking up hot yoga and starting kind of new things and learning new things. And a lot of times trying to be social. I'm in a new city, making new friends and doing that. I've also learned from me specifically, I require kind of a lot more pre-planning for what I need to do even to be social. So I have actually have a list places I want to go. I have a list of friends I can reach out to. I have a, I have a list of all these things because I realize I'm not really good at doing things on the fly. So for me, it's like, okay, you've listed all the places you want to go. Let's pick one. Let's go. Let's honor that promise to ourselves. So I think for me, that's really what my schedule will show in terms of what's important. But mainly it's the puppy. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. I'd love to chat to you about social media and get your thoughts on it because you've had such an interesting experience with it. You've got a huge following. You are internet famous. Social media has given you this incredible opportunity, which you leapt on to build an amazing creative career and a loyal audience. And at the same time, social media keeps us trapped in all the flawed thinking patterns and programming that you so powerfully teach about. So how do you think about social media? Is it a force for good or not? And can we manage it better? And how do you see it impacting humanity in the future? I think if you asked me five years ago, I would say it's a double-edged sword. And I think now, I think it's, it's the downfall of our society. And yeah, I, I have a career based off of it. Unfollow me, get off social media. That's more important. Seriously, it's uh, what it's doing to our attention spans, what it's doing to our anxiety, what it's doing to create echo chambers, the way it's being manipulated to influence what we believe and what we care about and what we understand about the world, all of this is is horrific. And there's a really good argument that, you know, as a species, this is, you know, the tipping point of our society because we are becoming more apathetic and we are incentivized to express our opinions on things that we are not equipped to do. You know, it's the first time in human history that the average person is given a microphone to broadcast their thoughts. And we are not ready for that. Social media also, the type of people that have the, you know, the, 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 the confidence and audacity to share stuff on social media in any space, it's not a representation of the majority of us, positive or negative. So the level of influence that we are receiving from a minority group of people, minority thought points, and all of this is not creating an accurate reflection of the world that we live in. On top of that, you know, this stuff was designed by the smartest people in the world who were paid by the richest people in the world. And all they want is our attention. So, you know, whereas you're listening to a podcast right now, this is long form. This rewards having an attention span. You know, you're not scrolling through this. We're, go we're getting deep with it. You know, social media has gone the other way where it's like you have to express yourself in six seconds or you lose your audience. And I think that's having a massive impact, especially to the younger parts of our society that are still having developing brains. And there's data to support that. The self-harm has gone up, especially amongst young women, since the, the normalization of the smartphone. So about three years after its invention, showing that you know non-lethal administration into the hospital from young women jumped dramatically. Because these people, you know, these kids don't, they, they can't discern this stuff. We couldn't discern our own upbringings in the real world as kids. Imagine trying to look at life through a screen. It's, it's just not there. I understand it created opportunities and, you know, I used to view it as a hammer. It's like, yeah, you could build a home or a smash a skull. Now I just view it as, it's, it, it really is an interesting tool that has really brought next to no good to us and it's only we're only headed that way and I don't think there's anything that can be done about it I think it's really really interesting like if we've already hit critical mass and I think people know this I don't think I'm saying anything new or controversial by saying this I think people know this and I think people noticed it how quickly things accelerated during the pandemic I think people noticed that you know there was there was steady growth and then the pandemic got everybody on and then at that point you know, we feel it. And, you know, it's it's an abusive relationship. We don't know when it's going to be good. We don't know when we're going to see that inspirational video. We don't know when we're going to see that cute little puppy video. We don't know when it's going to be good. But we've made peace with most of the time it's going to be bad. 
It's going to make us question who we are, question our priorities, compare ourselves to other people. It's creating a hyper normal. It's creating a, a normal. It does, it's, it's, it's McDonald's French fries for our soul. And from that standpoint, I don't even view it as a contradiction that I exist and people know I exist because of my social media. Yeah, it's still, still the worst place to be. Every now and then I, I put up something just to, to my fellow creators and they all, you know, they all feel the same. They all, they all feel like it's this necessary evil so the world knows they exist. And if they stop posting tomorrow, the world will forget about them. And they, the world will. And I think it's just the, the message I want to be like, maybe that might not be such a bad thing. Because your only other reward is to constantly chase engagement. Hmm. I know for me personally, when I am not on there as much, I am so much more peaceful. I am so much more content. I don't compare myself as much. It's just, for me, mentally, it's just not the best place for me. So I get on and I post and then I get off and that's okay. But yeah, for me right now in my life, doesn't feel good. I'd never get off and go, wow, I feel amazing. I feel so confident within myself. I feel so at peace. I feel so happy. Said me never after being on social media. And I'm in a vulnerable state in my life too. I've recently had a daughter. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, she's two. I mean, it's not brand new, but she's two. And so this transition into motherhood has been huge for me. And you're so much more sensitive to things. You are learning a new skill for the very first time ever in your entire life. And you're a lot more vulnerable and open and emotional. And so for me, it's just not served me. And so I'm aware of that, which is really great because then I can have the choice. I can go, okay, cool. I know how this is going to make me feel. Am I still going to do it? Or am I going to go and sit outside instead or go and do something else with my time? Yeah. And, and I think it's also, you just got to realize like it's not a weakness for us to be addicted to social media. Like, as I said, this was designed by the smartest people in the world and they were paid by the richest people in the world. Like the best minds created this to make it addictive. And it's using, you know, it's, it's un they understand our psychology and our software and they're using it for that stance. And I always think about J. Cole, who's a, you know, a famous rapper who took like two to three years off of social media, you know, in between, you know, releasing albums. And he said the moment he went back to start promoting his new album, he goes, it felt within 10 minutes, it felt like he never went off. He goes, I did not come back as a more evolved individual because I got sucked right back in. It's salty potato chips. It's all the things that, that are designed to keep us addictive. It's not, again, a lot of the problems that we experience as human beings, again, these things are designed to create these problems, you know, for profit. And it's, uh, it's nothing that we can do. We can get all the, we can drink all the water. We can sleep as much as we can. We can do all the meditation, but these things are here. And the only thing we can do is avoid them as much as we can. And again, like I, you know, I realize social media is one thing. The comment section of any social media is even more horrific because people are incentivized to be loud and to be mean and, and to be all those things. And it's also like, you know, so for example, you know, this is my phone. I have it in black and white, you know, so I've taken the color off my, and then I have a separate phone. You know, here's my, my separate phone for social media and it's all black and white as well. So I'm just trying to do as little as I can. So when I leave the house, I have no access to social media. I have no access to color on my phone because those colors are so bright. Whenever I do have to put on the color to like look at a picture or approve something, it burns the eye. You start to realize. It's like when you eat healthy for so long and then you try to have fast food. Then you realize, you're like, oh my God, this is way more potent than I realized. And I think it's just really important. And as I said, there are alternatives. You know, as I said, a podcast is a much healthier thing to consume because it's a regular conversation with normal people at a slow space, but it's also long form. You know, it's actually better than even what we were doing on TV, which was bite-sized. And I think from that standpoint, it's really important just to maintain your your attention span. People are struggling to read books. People are struggling to do all these other things because their attention spans are shot from this technology. So my view is if you can, you can get off of it or you can make progress to reduce your usage and don't rely on discipline. You got to rely on making adjustments to your environment. Yeah, absolutely. There's little things that you can do. You can set time limits on your phone. My screen is 
the amber night mode shift and then I've got it black as well. I've had some friends who have done the same thing as you and made it all black and white. And I did do that for a phase, but I'm constantly editing photos and looking at photos and stuff. And so I was chopping and changing and I just put it back on. But it really did make me not want to look at it because it wasn't pleasant to look at. So it does work. So you can set up limits. And we talk about this in my latest book that I wrote with my husband, Time Magic, Reclaim Your Time, Reclaim Your Life. We talk a lot about these things that you can do to reclaim some of the time that you were wasting on social media. It's crazy. We spend the average person 15 years of their life on social media. 15 years. And that is for someone who gets a phone at around the age of 15, which has been the average age for the past years. However, it's getting younger and younger now. It's crazy. Like, Younger than that, they're having their own iPads and their own iPhones. And I know with my daughter, my husband and I, we're both on the same page with this. And I've interviewed some of the world's best scientists and doctors and New York Times bestsellers on the impacts of screen time on children. And so my husband and I are like, she'll be 45 by the time she gets her first smartphone. We're joking, but we will prolong it as long as possible. We don't have a TV in our house. We don't have iPads. She's never had a screen in front of her face in over two years, almost two and a half years. And so it's just about shifting what many people are doing and do what feels right and true for you and your family. And then feel the difference. I know for me, like I feel so much more at peace. I feel so much more content when I am not staring at my device all the time. Absolutely. And I mean, I can say like getting my parents an iPad and, you know, my mother consuming social media for the first time in her like late 60s, I, see, I can even see it having an impact on them, you know, where it was like, oh, they use it for like 10 minutes a day to like, you know, they start their days and end their days off. You know, like these are designed to do this. None of us are immune to it. You know, it's really the creatures that they they really did a lot of human psychology study to create, you know, these are, you know, they're like gambling machines, you know, they're like when you pull the lever, you know, slot machines and, you know, you just keep going through it and it's designed to keep your attention and it's designed to just suck your time. And it's 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 a really tricky one. And I think everyone would be better off without it. Will that happen? Probably not. So it's really about you and your individual choices now to reduce it for you and your and those you care about. Absolutely. What is your definition of success and what do you attribute your success to? I think my definition of success is uh, having the ability to live an authentic life that I want to live, having time, space, confidence, and bandwidth to do so. I'm learning success is not simply money because I think it's really important for people to understand that you can get trapped in just trying to make money all the time. Really kind of living on your own terms, but constantly evolving your own terms. And it's been really interesting, even moving here, I have friends who have become very successful in terms of their monetary success and um, don't have to work. And watching how they spend their time is really interesting because they're still living a life of purpose. They're waking up very early. They're doing a lot of things. You know, They're still trying to make themselves feel very useful. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Let's pretend you have a magic wand now and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your incredible books, which book would you choose? The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield. Mm. Mm, so good. Yeah. And I'll link to that in the show notes. I'll link to your incredible books as well. But if you have not read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, do yourself a favor and read it. I have read it multiple times. It is incredible, life-changing, that book. Let's talk about your day. I love hearing about people's morning routines. I know you said before that a lot of it revolves around your puppy at the moment, but talk to us about your routines, your rituals. Do you meditate? Do you work out? Talk us through a quote-unquote typical day in your life. A typical day would be I wake up and then I, I have one of those Apple HomePods that you kind of like you scream at and it just listens to you. So I have certain podcasts that I start my day with instantly. So I, that's, that's how I avoid my phone. 
So I'm like, hey, Siri, play, and I'll play a different podcast that I want to hear. And there's certain podcast hosts that have different lengths. That's what I'm doing when I'm preparing breakfast, brushing my teeth, and having that playing. And I try to at least get through an episode before I look at my phone. And obviously, as we all know, once you look at your phone, it's all downhill after that. And then for me, it's, it's you know, having calls and meetings and stuff like that are really important, depending on. I don't, I don't have a, a typical nine-to-five job, so I think it's very different there. But sorry, so and then the mindfulness will probably be about five minutes before I ask Siri to play anything. So five minutes of mindfulness as soon as I wake up, put on a podcast, something inspirational, something useful. And then after that, kind of starting my day and then trying to get outside as quickly as possible with the puppy to to let her relieve herself, but also get some sunshine and be outside and be physical. And then I was, when I was in Los Angeles working out, uh, with a trainer here, I've been doing jujitsu, and that generally happens in the morning. And then after that, you know, trying to get some deep work done. And then after that, it's like almost a write-off in terms of running errands, answering emails, and doing all the other stuff. And it's kind of a, a fluid day. Yeah. And what are some of your favorite podcasts that you tend to listen to or gravitate towards in the mornings? I love Jay Shetty's podcast um specifically the listicles the the lists he he does not the interviews because the list ones are a little bit shorter i love rob dial's uh rob dial podcasts are are really short 20 minute ones um there's a really amazing podcast called make art not content by father bronx and it's just the most creative kind of produced podcast i've ever heard it's a lot of sound effects and noises so these are kind of high energy tips to kind of as I said, the goal is to get to not be on the phone. And these are shorter. So they're not, I, I kind of, I, I tend to, the longer form, if I hear a great interview, if I want to hear something that you're doing, I think a lot of those generally happen when I'm walking the dog. But during first thing in the morning, it's got to be something where I can just start eating some brain food. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. Okay, I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Yeah. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Drink more water. Yes, absolutely. What is one thing that we can do for our wealth, so more abundance in all areas of our life? Every time you meet somebody, ask, what can I do for you? That's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to do that today for sure. And last one, what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? We can share more love. I think love is a verb. Understand love is a verb. Understand you're creating pathways for love to flow. You don't find love. You don't earn love. You don't win love. You just create pathways for love to flow. And that starts with you. you don't, it doesn't even require another person. Beautiful. I love that. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I think I'm, I'm in the chapter of my own life where I'm trying to let go of the word should. I think I'm trying to you know, divorce that word should. And it's, it's, it's taking me on a whole new adventure of discovering who I am versus who I should be. And I encourage other people to do the same thing. Tradition is peer pressure from dead people. Let go of it and see who you can be if you don't have to worry about the expectations of others. I love that. That's beautiful. This has been so lovely. I've loved this conversation. I could chat to you for hours. You are helping. You are inspiring. You are serving so many people. I want to know what I and the listeners can do to give back and serve you today. If you're called to it, you know, check, check out the books. You know, the new book is called How to Be Loved. It's right here. I'm very fortunate that I can write these books and I can write them as potent and as vulnerable as possible and also have a career made from it. But also, you know, find your stories and my stories and share your stories as well. By all means, just hit me up, come in my DMs and tell me your stories, leave voice notes. I appreciate all of it. I think, you know, when you first start, especially when I first started in music, you're like, oh man, only my friends and family come to my shows. Like, I'm not going to have any fans. And then you realize, like, no, you don't even want fans. You want to increase your friends and family. You want to increase your community. I think with the work that I'm trying to do, the only way to make it sustainable is by keeping it as authentic as possible and going as deep as possible instead of playing, you know, following a trend or something like that. So for me, I think it's a consume anything that I've created and have a conversation with me about it and then let's grow together from it. I'm, I'm at that stage where that's all I want to do is connect, create, and learn. Beautiful. Me too. And have a lot of fun. In a the lot process. of fun. Yes. <laughs> a lot of dance parties for sure. <laughs>
Oh, for sure. <laughs> this has been so beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for all your incredible books. I'm sending you so much love. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope this episode has inspired you to dive deeper within yourself, to up your self-love, to up your self-care. Start with some journaling like we spoke about and some dancing on your own. I just want you to try this for a week. I want you to dance for one minute in your bedroom, on your own or in the bathroom, whatever. Put some music on, lock the door if you need to, but just dance and close your eyes and feel the music. One song, that is all you have to commit to one song. And then also for the next week, I'd love for you to commit to some journaling. And again, you can rip it up, you can burn it, do whatever you have to do to allow yourself to be able to fully express and come and tell me on Instagram how you go. And if you loved this conversation and you got a lot out of it, please subscribe to the show. And if you haven't already, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. Now, come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this conversation. I absolutely love connecting with you and I love hearing your biggest insights. So come and share them with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.